You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. I want to talk about your other books. Um, my field, of course, is nuclear intelligence, and uh, I've read all of your other books as a grad student, actually one as an undergrad. Um, and the question that I constantly, whenever anyone finds out what I do, they, they look at me like with this morbid curiosity, like, why are you interested in nuclear weapons? What got you on to nukes? What made you want to learn about and study nuclear policy? Uh, well, I, I remember uh, seeing a quotation from uh, Joseph Conrad one time, and he was asked about what motivated his writing of the novels. And he said it was the fascination of the abomination. And uh, in a sense, that was that was the case here, that uh, these weapons are so disproportionately destructive, and it's hard to imagine that any rational being would choose to, to use them. And yet, uh, they not only existed, but they proliferated during the Cold War to some incredible number. I think at one point, the estimate was there were 70,000 nuclear weapons, strategic and tactical, and, and if you added up all the arsenals of the nuclear powers. And, um, and uh, having taught this subject, what, and maybe you found this as well, what I found hardest to, uh, to convey to students is that uh, this actually was a real threat. Right. That, uh, that maybe it would be by accident, and there have been some recent books like Command and Control on, on this very issue, that show how close we got. Uh, how this this would be, uh, a nuclear or a nuclear war was uh, in fact a possibility, and at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually one just to segue a little bit back to the the Georgetown set, that um, one of the first people to find out about the missiles in Cuba after Kennedy uh, was uh, Chip Bolin. Kennedy told him the morning that the missiles that that Kennedy had been briefed on the existence of the missiles, and that evening um, Kennedy and Chip Bolin were guests of Joe Alsop. Uh, at uh, Joe Alsop's house, and uh, at at one point, and uh, Joe, of course, did not know about the missiles in Cuba at that point, but he did notice that Kennedy seemed distracted throughout the dinner, and uh, even though he rarely repeated himself, he twice asked Bolin at dinner, what do you think the Soviets would do if their backs were to the wall? 
and because uh, he was already he Kennedy was thinking already of what steps he would take to confront the Russians. Well, it's pretty amazing that he could actually have a conversation at all, knowing what they knew at that point, and, right. and the kind of uh, stress that must have brought upon uh, both he and Bolin. Um, you spent decades, and not to age you, um, <laughs> looking at the confluence of science and foreign policy, looking at uh, how the fact that science has some really unique properties that make it especially difficult for foreign policymakers um, and in planning. Um, not to answer your question, the question I'm about to ask you, but in what basic ways did science and scientific development complicate policymaking? And not just in nuclear weapons, but certainly in within nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Yeah. Well, you, you had mentioned Cardinal Choices, and, uh, which is about the science advisors, mm -hmm. and, and, and that was a spinoff of the, the, the previous book, uh, Councils of War, which is about the, the scientists and strategists who advise policymakers. And one thing that I, I was struck in doing the research with that book was the disconnect between the scientists and the, and the political figures and the policymakers. So I, that's how I got interested in science advice to the president. And uh, what I wrote about, really sort of chapter by chapter, were specific deci decisions, certain choices that were made where the uh, scientific advice was either disregarded or misunderstood um, or, um, uh, or just, you know, in fact, never, never even received yeah. by, the, uh, by the president uh, on, on issues ranging from the atomic bomb to the origins of, the, uh, of SDI. Well, with intelligence, of course, it doesn't matter how good your intelligence agencies are if you can't actually disseminate that information to the highest policymakers. And certainly within the nuclear field, you run into the problem of military commanders being brought up at West Point in the teens and 20s who maybe have an engineering background, but they have no idea what nuclear physics looks like or, or, or anything. And then you get the young people like in think tanks like RAND and others, like the Bernard Brodies of the group, uh, who are really the true experts in this case. And so you have this confluence of the old guard not really understanding the new ways of war with this group that perhaps is trying to tell the high-level policymakers uh, what's up without getting through, like without them understanding because the, the lack of scientific background at the highest level. Um, is this something, uh, thinking I know the answer, but I, I'd love to ask you because this is your expertise, is this something that really holds back policymaking during the early years of the Cold War? Uh, I would say so, and I think one specific example would be the H-bomb decision, for example, that, uh, that there was uh, a complete disconnect or lack of communication between the scientists who served on the General Advisory Committee, for example, of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, chaired by Robert Oppenheimer, and the policymakers that, that um, it's true that, that uh, Isidore Rabi, one of the atomic scientists who built the bomb, who also was on that committee with Oppenheimer, that Oppenheimer and Rabi and Enrico Fermi, all these leading lights of American scientific expertise, uh, opposed the, uh, the H-bomb for ethical reasons, if you will, that it was just disproportionately a city killer and, and was not a military weapon in any kind of traditional sense. But that they're also, the, uh, they had practical objections to it. The one thing that if you, first off, the bomb wasn't clear, it wasn't clear that you could make the bomb or that it would work, but that in the process of even attempting to make it, you would take away efforts and material from uh, building conventional, well, conventional nuclear weapons, right. smaller nuclear fission weapons, weapons, fission yeah. weapons, exactly. 
uh, and that that might imperil, because the stockpile, the American stockpile was not very large, that might imperil American defense. So this was a rational argument, and there were other arguments that uh, were scientific in nature to the effect that we would know the Soviets were making uh, progress on their own super bomb, their own hydrogen bomb, by uh, air sampling. And uh, so therefore, we, and then we could launch our own crash effort if need be. So there, were, and, and that was all misunderstood. I actually interviewed Isidore Rabi about that. And Rabi said that uh, rather than write the, um, uh, the report that, that he and Fermi did, that said basically this is a weapon of genocide, it is a, a terrible thing seen in any light, what they should have written was a, uh, a sort of basic scientific treatise that would have been understandable to policymakers, even Truman, to the effect that uh, you're going to imperil, possibly imperil American uh, security by going ahead trying to build this weapon as opposed to building fission weapons. And by the way, that if the Russians are making progress, we would know about it. Uh, Robbie told me that it, the, the report should have been many pages and should have not have been based on ethics but upon right. scientific data. And of course, on the other side of that debate was Edward Teller, who had been pushing for hydrogen field weapons since, well, during the Manhattan Project. He, uh, and that clash between Teller and Oppenheimer is famous. Uh, and it culminates certainly in during Oppenheimer's 1954 security tr clearance trial. Um, what always interested me as a question would be how different that would have been if it had played out after the West had learned about the Stalin period, after the secret speech. If, because, of course, Oppenheimer and many of the people who had become fellow travelers of, of the communist world back in the 30s, uh, had this vision of a utopian society in the Soviet Union, all that comes crashing down once Khrushchev, you know, details the crimes of the Stalinist period, which is only two years after mm -hmm. the uh, the security trial, um, and of course the, the 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 urban legend, or at least the uh, the common story, is that that's when Oppenheimer and Teller kind of came together, and Oppenheimer stopped refusing to speak to Teller after that point because he realized that. He had been fooled all along. Um, how does this relationship play out, and how important is this relationship to uh, the future of American policy at the time? Well, one, one thing, I, I think that, that actually Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, was disabused of the Soviet utopia probably well before uh, the, the, the uh, Khrushchev speech, that he, in fact, really during the war, that, uh, that he, uh, he will make comments to um, Hukan Chevalier, for example, who was his close friend and who was a member of, the, of a closed unit of the Communist Party, with Oppenheimer at that time, uh, that uh, Hukan, you, you know, these people are not what you think, and that uh, you know Stalin is not the hero that we we believed him to be. So I think that that uh, Oppenheimer was certainly aware of the Soviet menace and believed in it, uh, even even at the end of the Second World War. So. Um, but it, but the the point you make about the influence of, of personality in politics is a is a valid one. And it uh, there was and, and really is the focus of Brotherhood of the Bomb is the um, the rivalry and the dispute between uh, uh, Teller and Oppenheimer. And uh, Teller, of course, famously said at the security hearing in '54 that uh, Oppenheimer was a man who whose uh, judgment he didn't really trust or understand. He didn't accuse Oppenheimer of being disloyal, mm -hmm. but that he said that he felt that uh, he would feel better if American security were in other hands, 
and uh, that was viewed as a damning indictment, basically, and, and, uh, and enough to, as some of the scientists who I interviewed said, it was like sticking a knife in Oppenheimer's back and turning the, the, the handle. That uh, uh, It was a betrayal as far as they right. were concerned. Um, I actually interviewed uh, Teller on, every time I interviewed Teller, and I interviewed him, I think, a total of four times now, um, he was the one to raise the issue of Oppenheimer, and I always <laughs> thought that that was interesting. And the last time I interviewed him was only about three months before his death, right after uh, Brotherhood of the Bomb had come out, and I'd given a lecture at Livermore Laboratory. Um, Teller, by that time, had had two heart attacks and a stroke, I think, but uh, had good days and bad days, and I happened to catch him on a, on a good day. And um, he, uh, w he, he was the one, again, who raised the Oppenheimer question, and, and he said, do you... Uh, he asked me, do you, do you think I did the right thing? And I said, well, uh, in testifying against Oppenheimer. And I said, well, it was essentially a political trial, and I thought the fix was in, and it was unnecessary. And, uh, and Teller's response was a typical Teller double, double negative to the effect of, uh, I think that it may not have been unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> so even at the end, uh, right. he, was, he, had not, uh, he had not changed his views. Well, Groves, Leslie Groves very famously was somewhat similar in that respect, is that he, uh, you know, he was one of the other knives in Oppenheimer's back during the security clearance trial, but not necessarily on purpose. I believe he was asked whether or not, based on the new security laws, if he would have been able to hire Oppenheimer's head of the Manhattan Project, and I think he very plainly said, well, not based on the current laws, he wouldn't pass the security clearance, and that was enough to kind of doom him, and, and Groves later on in his life wrote that he regrets the fact that answering that question truthfully led, or helped at least, Oppenheimer to lose the security clearance. Right, and there actually is, there's, there's another sort of internal story to that, and that was that the, the FBI was in a position to blackmail uh, Groves, and in fact, they, they coached him on his testimony. The prosecution coached him on his testimony. And it had to do with the fact that, um, it's a bit complex, but th there's the, uh, the story that uh, Oppenheimer had told that about being approached by uh, Soviet agents regarding cooperating with them. And uh, he actually told three versions of that story. Uh, the two that are well known is that he first said that there had been three people who had been contacted, three scientists with the project, and he'd advised them not to go any further. Uh, that was the story he told to Army Security Agent Pash. Uh, subsequently, after the war in 1946, he tells the FBI a different story, which is, no, that there was only one person who was approached, and that was me. But in between, uh, he actually had told Groves a third version of that, which is, no, the person who was approached was my brother, Frank. Hmm. And Groves had never reported that. But his attorney, the chief attorney for the Manhattan Project, uh, finds out about it and realizes that because Groves had not reported it, he might be imperiled too. Hmm. Uh, essentially, that he is withholding uh, the truth of a, an espionage conspiracy in wartime, which is a felony. Right. So that um, so that Groves had been caught. This story is in Brotherhood of the Bomb, hmm. and I, it, it's... It, just so I probably should have given it more prominence, but uh, using FBI records, I, I found out that the uh, that Groves's testimony had been coached in advance, so that he would not come to the defense, yeah. uh, the the rally uh, of uh, of Oppenheimer. Well, since then, actually, a lot of uh, Boris Pash's handwritten notes on the different scientists that he was asked to investigate during that time have become declassified. 
uh, on Frank Oppenheimer, on Robert Oppenheimer, on many of those who would be disqualified from the Manhattan Project because they had close ties to communists in the CPUSA in California. Um, I want the question comes up. Uh, Certainly for those who understand Oppenheimer as a fellow traveler or as a, uh, his mistress at one time was a card-carrying member of, of the uh, Communist Party and certainly uh, his brother Frank, um, is there any evidence whatsoever to say that Oppenheimer gave information over to the Soviets about the U.S. atomic bomb program? Uh, no. Okay. And, and in fact, actually, it goes further than that, that the, we now know from, uh, from uh, Soviet sources, from, well, from the Venona uh, intercepts and also from the Vasilyev papers uh, at the Wilson Center. And Vasilyev was the KGB agent who basically brought information, uh, his notes on the KGB files to the U.S. when he, or to, to the West when he defected. Uh, we know that there were, I, I actually wrote an article on this for the Journal of Cold War Studies, and I added up the number of people, but I think there were 23 different people who had been coached or approached by, the, uh, by Soviet intelligence to uh, get secrets from, uh, from Oppenheimer, and that in each case Oppenheimer uh, said no. So that the, uh, uh, there is no evidence that, in fact, I would say there is you know, evidence to the contrary that Oppenheimer provided any information to the Russians. On that, on that same vein, what is your opinion on the impact of those who actually do provide information on the atomic bomb, from Klaus Fuchs to Ted Hall? To, just <laughs> yeah. briefly, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm asked this question all the time. I've actually given talks with the Smithsonian uh -huh. and others on this. Uh, just, but just uh, my opinion is uh, that they would have had the bomb anyway. It just sped the process up to some degree. Yeah, I, I agree. Probably a year, a year and a half, I think. Uh, we, we know that, in fact, the Russian, the Russian physicists were pretty good. And, yeah. uh, in fact, they even came up with a, a design that was an improvement upon the uh, Fat Man implosion bomb and wanted to use it uh, as the first bomb, as I understand. But uh, that they realized that it was a little bit dicey because it was an experimental device, whereas they had the, um, the blueprints for the, the Fat Man that they knew worked. Uh, right. and so... They went ahead with uh, with that, and you, I'm sure you've seen the pictures, uh, you know, with Karatan next to the uh, the Soviet Fat Man, which is almost identical. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so, and David yeah. Greenglass, who just died yeah. recently, handed over the technical drawings for a lot of that. For and, the lenses, yeah. yeah, yeah for the lenses. Yeah. But, I, but as you say, I think that it was Ted Hall and, and Klaus Fuchs yeah. who really were key to that. And, and there may and there's some evidence, I think this is through Venona, that there were others, you know, the Cohens, for example, right. uh, provided information. So the, uh, the important thing to, from the Soviet perspective was that they had multiple independent confirmation that this was the device and that it and it worked. And I think it was David Holloway and uh, Stalin and the bomb who made the argument that uh, the number one positive benefit for the Soviet Union of these spies is the fact that Stalin and, and Beria, the head of the NKVD, didn't really trust Soviet scientists. But when the Soviet scientists were uh, backed up or at least proven correct by intelligence information from the United States, then all of a sudden what they were doing, what they're asking for, uh, was legitimate. And I think that that's an interesting take on this to where the Soviet scientists knew what to do before the American information came in. but because Stalin and Beria didn't trust their own scientists. Once they saw it come in from the Manhattan Project, oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, then they be, the scientists became heroes of the Soviet right. Union or received right. the orders of Lenin, whereas they would have gone to the gulag. Right. So I, I want to finish up by asking you two questions. One, one the last one is about your, your work at, uh, at Air and Space. But first, um, a question that I wanted to ask, and you're the perfect person to ask this, is the concept of MAD, of mutually assured destruction, the concept of deterrence during the Cold War. 
I've always argued, and others have as well, that, of course, this is what keeps us safe, but this is a concept or, or a strategy entirely dependent on intelligence, entirely dependent on knowledge of what the other side has, because you need to know that there is some kind of a balance. And lack of intelligence almost got us into trouble when we thought we had a bomber gap or a missile gap. When you feel as though the other country or the other side is either stronger or weaker than you are, most of the time incorrectly because you have bad information, that is the recipe for a disaster. And so mad in the safety that nuclear weapons provide us, if you want to use that phrase, and I do, during the Cold War was almost entirely dependent on good intelligence on both sides. Mm -hmm. Am I talking out my ear or is there some <laughs> legitimacy to that? Uh well, you raise a good point, and actually that, when I was writing Councils of War, I kept on running across in SAC doctrine the expression that uh, the United States would never attack the Soviet Union first unless we received unambiguous strategic warning that mm -hmm. uh, a Soviet attack was underway. And this, this became almost a SAC mantra, unambiguous strategic warning. So uh, in, in those days, um, uh, Curtis LeMay was still alive. He right. was retired. Uh, but he, of course, had been the commander of, uh, of SAC in the, the formative days. So I, I got his telephone number, and uh, I, I was, this was when I was teaching at Yale. And I called him up, and I identified myself, and I said, you know, General, I'm writing this, this book, and I keep on hearing this, seeing this expression of uh, in SAC doctrine of uh, unambiguous strategic warning. And, and what exactly was that, and, and how was it determined? And uh, and I can't really repeat his answer, <laughs> but I'll just I'll paraphrase it to the effect that uh, you, uh, Professor, shouldn't get uh, too upset about that, uh, that, uh, that I knew what it was, and <laughs> I knew when we'd have it, and uh, we would operate on that basis. And I, I never actually did find, I, I did uh, see and actually personally meet LeMay later at the Air and Space Museum when he came to give a a lecture just shortly before his death. And he, he by the way, was a very impressive figure. He, um, he was there just to introduce a film. He said he wasn't going to give a speech, but he actually talked for about half an hour uh, without notes and made, uh, made a lot of sense. But uh, I asked him, I didn't identify myself, I drove him back to his hotel. And I didn't identify myself as the, uh, the young professor who had asked him the question a few years, many years back. Uh, but I, uh, I sort of phrased the question differently, but asked it again. And uh, he explained that he did have a, uh, an aide-de-camp, and, and a senior officer, who, uh, whose job in the Air Force, whose job was to contact the AEC opposite number. And you know they had they split the codes for opening the igloos or getting access to the weapons between the AEC and and, uh, and the SAC commander, um, and. Um, and he said that his aide-de-camp always worked out an agreement that if he came to the AEC guy and the general, General LeMay, had asked for release of the weapons, that they would get release of the weapons. So, but I never did find an exact answer to what what an unambiguous strategic warning was. Right. Was it three blips on a radar yeah. screen, or was it a, a weapon impacting somewhere in the continental U.S.? Well, and what would always interested me about this also is in the, in the vein of intelligence was the idea that the only way mad works is if you believe the other side is willing to uh, to counterattack is willing to fire and end civilization as we know it. and really this comes down to both psychological and political intelligence the idea of will this president push the button you know the the, the metaphorical button will will they will they essentially end civilization with their decision? And, and so the only way this continued to work is that each president in the United States had to understand that their counterpart in the Soviet Union 
psychologically, they had the political intelligence to say, yes, Brezhnev will launch an entire retaliatory strike against the United States and vice versa. You know, so a lot of the scramble when a new president came to power was, would this new president be willing to start World War III over Berlin or over the Middle East or over some other area of the world? And that's really an intelligence question more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, actually getting back to that, that time when um, uh, President Kennedy went to Joe Alsop's house at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, afterwards um, Kennedy and Alsop and Bolin were out in Joe's garden and uh, Kennedy just happened to raise the, uh, the point about the danger of nuclear war and he had been briefed course on what we now know the PSYOP and he just casually said that he thought within the text ten the next ten years that there was a fifty fifty chance of a of a nuclear war. And uh, and Joe wrote in his diary that the French ambassador who was there turned the color of an uncooked biscuit when <laughs> uh, when he heard this. Uh, and Joe of course remembered the comment as well. But what was sort of spooky is that uh, at one of the the, uh, the conferences they held on the anniversary of the missile crisis that Robert McNamara had said that he thought that the chance uh, of a miscalculation that would have resulted in nuclear war was about 50-50. Mm -hmm. And of course we know now what we didn't know then because of imperfect intelligence that there were nuclear weapons uh, in Cuba between uh, 90 and 150, uh, right. including at least a dozen on short-range missiles that were uh, prepared to be launched against any American invasion fleet. So uh, and a couple so on submarines too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was. Uh, it was. It was a. Uh, it was a close thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. You mentioned the psyop, and that, that's essentially the the operations plan that would would was pre-planned that would be targets throughout the Soviet Union, and in some cases China. Essentially, that's a a fancy way of saying we'd send everything we got uh, to to wipe out the Soviet Union and vice versa. Um, the final question I want to ask you is about your time at Air and Space. And I think the story of your acquisition of the SS-20 needs to be told. I think it's, it's pretty humorous. <laughs> can you, can you, because anyone who's been to the Air and Space Museum, the minute you walk in the door, if you look to your left, there's a great uh, you know, ex exhibition or, or, or artifacts of these strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, and you know, Dr. Herkin here was the reason, uh, or at least a big part of the reasons, of course, it's a group effort to bring the SS-20 to the Air and Space Museum, but it's a great story. Can you can you talk us through that? <laughs> okay, well, it's a long story too, but I'll I'll, I'll try to make it somewhat brief. Well, uh, actually, that was my first when I was hired at the museum. My first uh, mission that was given was to see if we could trade an American missile for a Soviet missile under the terms of the uh, uh, Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. Uh, the treaty allowed for, uh, commanded the destruction of most of the missiles, but allowed for keeping up to, I think the number was 15 or so, for static display for a museum uh, exhibit. So, um, so we let the Russians know that we were interested in, uh, in getting uh, an SS-20, which was the most dangerous of the Euro, so-called Euro missiles, and we would trade them uh, what they considered the most dangerous of the American missiles, which was the, uh, the Pershing II. And, uh, and we were able to get, the Army gave us a dummy Pershing II, looked just like the real thing, and we contacted the Russians and said, can we do this trade? Well, this, this took two years of negotiations, and I, I spent innumerable times having uh, dinner with Soviet uh, representatives who came over who were part of the arms control process, and they would all say, uh, this is a great idea, we will make this happen. They would go back, we'd never hear from them again. So, but there was one day, it was a Friday late in, late afternoon, probably around 5.30 or so, I got a call from the Smithsonian Castle, and it said that there's somebody here who wants to talk to you about the SS-20, and he has a Russian accent. Yeah. So, and I was about out that, I almost said, well, 
tell him, you know, t give me a call on Monday. I'm right. off for the weekend. But I went over there, and it turned out to be his name was Gennady Kromov. And I found out later that he was a senior arms control negotiator who had, uh, who probably oversaw the um, design bureau that made the SS-20. But he came to my office and sat down and immediately pulled out photographs of the SS-20 that, that we had never seen, and I don't think even the arms control negotiators mm. on the American side had seen. And that basically, and then he invited me to, to come to Russia. So there were three trips to Kapustin Yar, which was the, the, the test center for the, uh, for the missile. And um, the Air Force was very cooperative. They flew in a, uh, a C-5 uh, plane to Sheremetrovo to the Moscow airport, and uh, the Russians transported the, um, the missile the SS-20 to the um, uh, to the C-5. Just uh, a little, there was more drama there because it turned out that uh, somebody had done the measurements wrong, and they couldn't <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't fit they couldn't fit the missile inside the airplane. So uh, and it was the, I think the first stage that wouldn't fit. So the uh, so the Russians got a uh, one of these uh, pallet loaders from Lufthansa at the airport. And they tried to push the uh, the missile in with that, and, the, and and they broke the pallet loader. So uh, and the C5 couldn't take off because the first stage was hanging out of the back of the uh, of the airplane, and uh, so we didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember the American, the, the poor American commander who was there, uh, was retiring, and he was missing his own retirement party. <laughs> <laughs> so he was not happy, and it began to rain. Anyway, it was just a sort of a fiasco. But the Russians actually saved the day that they they got the the. Uh, the biggest guys they could and the biggest piece of wood they could it looked like a tree trunk and the biggest truck they could and they they basically put the uh one end of the uh, the trunk against this the uh, the loader and, and one end against the truck and they had the three guys hold it and they pushed the first stage on uh which fit once you took the casing off of it so the uh, the wooden casing so that was anyway that that's how we got the uh uh the ss20 just the only uh the only other part of the drama was um that we had a ceremony at, at Kapustin Yar, and we had a brass band, and, and this is after we had wit I had been there with the on-site inspection team to witness the destruction by explosive by explosives of the the real SS20s, mm -hmm. which is quite dramatic because you stand back at the observation point uh, three miles from where they they detonate. They would detonate three of them at, at one time, and they'd wrap them in explosives and set them off, and it was really quite a fireworks uh, exhibit. But uh, but they saved our SS-20 and they had a, the the ceremony and they had a, a big shroud over the uh, the SS-20 and the band was playing and they uh, and they pulled the cord and shroud fell off and there was the missile and it uh, it said in, in letters that were about six feet high in red white and blue SS-20 <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my face sort of fell and they noticed that I said what's what's wrong and I said well you know at the Smithsonian we try to keep things in their operational colors as true to life as they really are and you know we know we've seen from your photographs that it should be you know field uh, that it should be green mm -hmm. and uh, you know it shouldn't say SS-20 so they and they were skillful negotiators and they said okay well we've seen the uh, the Pershing and we know that it says US Army on the side and we believe that the real Pershing doesn't say US Army so you're gaining some free advertising so we <laughs> want ours to say you know CCCP yeah. uh, SSSR um, so that uh, with a red star because the because the Pershing had a white star on it mm -hmm. so that is what you see now at the Air and Space Museum very nice yeah. great that's a great story um, well, the book is The Georgetown Set, and it's available anywhere that great books are sold, uh, as well as the Spy Museum retail shop and online at spymuseum.com. Um, actually, I heard that you are now on Twitter, 
uh, for the first time. Yes. Uh, and uh, so if you want to tweet at Dr. Herkin, I guess the hashtag is Georgetown set. Right. Okay. Right. I, I think it is. Actually. So, right. so we, we think the Georgetown, the Georgetown set or Georgetown set. We'll try them both. If you want to send him a question, maybe he'll, uh, he'll get back to you. But uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. And uh, we look forward to the next book. Oh, uh, thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.